0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Alvin Noe, who is a professor of philosophy at UC Berkeley, also affiliated with the Free University in Berlin and the author of many books the the most recent book is called the entanglement how art and philosophy make us what we are and it sucks together (laughs) things from lots of your previous work and i think you began as sort of a more pure cognitive theorist right a philosopher of mind back in the day with things like action and perception also let's see out of our heads why you are not your brain and other lessons from the biology of consciousness this book called "Learning to Look." I wrote a book on baseball. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that. And "Strange Tools: Art and Human Nature." And I think this book builds a lot on "Strange Tools," which I guess we would classify it as philosophy of art. But I think that's a narrow classification. It kind of it's a little too shallow to describe what this book is about. Welcome, Alva.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. I published Action and Perception, the first book you flashed across the screen back at the very end of 2004, and it was the culmination of work I'd been doing, a lot of it in collaboration with people in empirical cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. And I'd made a kind of discovery, or we'd made a discovery, which was that the body and our ability skillfully to move the body plays a very important role in understanding how we see, and indeed how we perceive more generally. So I developed in that book this idea that don't think of seeing as something that happens just in your brain. Think of it as something that you enact through your brain, body, world, environment, interaction. The reason I mentioned that to begin this conversation is that it turned out, and this was not the intention, this is published in an MIT Philosophy and Neuroscience imprint, but it turned out this book was read by dancers. Dancers were fascinated by this. And I think one reason they were fascinated by it is that I was telling them something they thought they already knew. (laughs) They already know how important the body is for what they do. But I was also offering them resources for thinking about consciousness and experience. And this really started right away after the publication of that book. Maybe in 2005, I started getting invitations to join dancers in, in dance workshops or to visit with a company while they were making a new piece or to talk with choreographers about what they were doing. And they were trying to pick my brains, but it quickly became clear to me that I needed to pick their brains, that they really had an interesting project that was hard to understand. What are they doing? What is the work that drives them? Is it just dancing the way we all dance when we're at a party or is they, and they just do it better or they do it with more virtuosity? Or is there something else going on there? And that's how this all got started through these conversations. I thought I really need to understand what art is. And I had this intuition that I was not going to explain art. But that I was going to work with art to explain us. <laughs> That's where this started.
0: Yeah, and, you know, you have a couple different definitions of art, but I think your point is that it's fundamentally what you call a disorganizing activity. And so it, there, there seems to be, you have this hierarchy, right, <laughs> where you have perhaps dance with a capital D, which is the art, and then you have dancing, which is a form of technology or some way of organizing movement and so at the bottom you have movement so there's like movement and then there's dancing and then there's dance capital d and what i liked about this book is that it seems like you're going way back i mean you're taking that whole nomos physis debate right which is the oldest philosophical debate on the planet and you're revisiting it with fresh eyes and breaking down the distinction and i think it pushes against perhaps the dominant view of aesthetics that is dominated by neuroscience this idea that you know there is this aesthetic experience right that that happens in the brain and I think your point to some degree is that you can't say dance without enacting in some way the product of some choreographer right that existed in the past in economics we say that I think it was Keynes who said that everybody's just living out something that was cooked up by an economist at some point in the past. And here you're saying that everybody is doing something that was influenced by or shaped by art.
1: Yeah. Let me just say a couple of things. I don't like hierarchy, although I realize it can easily sound that way. I'm not saying dance with a capital D, choreography, dance on the stage, Balanchine, art is this great thing, higher and above and that what kids do at the school cafeteria in sixth grade when there's a party, a school dance, that's this other thing, much lower. I'm really interested, actually, in the way in which you couldn't have the one if you didn't have the other, and you couldn't have the other if you didn't have the one. Like, you need them both, and they feed on each other, and they always have fed on each other. So in a way, I think that what the kids are doing in the school cafeteria is an expression of a dance culture, and likewise, what the artists are doing on the stage it's really only worthwhile and important because they live in a culture where kids dance in the cafeteria after school. So it's, a, it's this really interesting kind of mutual generativity that makes us that what we are over time. Dancing is just an example, but the same kinds of points can be made in our visual lives, the same kinds of points can be made in our linguistic lives. So I don't really want to say hierarchy, although at the same time, one of the arguments in this book is that art and philosophy are really important. And they're important in ways that the popular ideas in our civilization at the moment about the preeminence of science, technology, engineering, math, this kind of STEM worldview really misses the point. There is no STEM without art and philosophy, and which is not to say that there isn't a very important place for science, technology, and engineering, but it means that they need to appreciate better their own limitations. And those limitations have everything to do with where our lives get into a space where we don't have criteria for deciding whether answers are good or bad. And we start getting interested in what the questions are that haven't even found articulation. There's this quote I love to give from James Baldwin that the aim of art is to uncover the questions that have been hidden by the answers. And it's such a simple idea, but it's it, to me, it's so profound. And I think that philosophy is in in the same business, something that I'm also really, and this is related to where you started, that I'm really interested in is how much we are creatures of habit, how much, you know, when we dance, we don't need to think about how we're, I mean, with our friends at a party, we don't think about how to do it because our body already knows we've got those habits, we learned, we've built up over a lifetime ways of doing things and the way we talk and the way we sit and the way we drive and the way we write and type. And we are just, We've learned, we're so trained up (laughs) that we just can carry on. And there'd be no science, there'd be no friendship, there'd be no communication. If not for that, we need that. We need to be automatic in a certain kind of way. Imagine if we had to make every decision deliberately. But I think it's also a very interesting fact about us that none of us chose those habits. We just found ourselves saddled with them. And there's a way, there's a point of view, a perspective from which we're slaves to those ways we find ourselves. The word I like to use in both books, Strange Tools and The Entanglement, is organized. We're just organized. We're put together in this way. And that's where I think art and philosophy really have a very special role to play because they're, as you put it, exactly the right, they used exactly the right word, they're in the business of disorganizing us. But not just to mess us up for the sake of messing us up, but because in disorganizing us, they suddenly, I think, and I can give examples to show how this kind of thing works, but. They let us catch ourselves in the act of being what we are. They uncover ourselves to ourselves. And and that's only part of the puzzle. Furthermore, in doing that, they let us change. And in that sense, they free us a little bit from the ways we're creatures of habit. Well,
0: I think that's what you mean when you say that art is in the business of ecstasy, right? I mean, in the original meaning of, of the word, right? And I think the deeper point is that it's really impossible to talk about a completely natural way of doing anything, really. I mean, a natural dance or natural sex or, or even like natural eating, right? I mean, this notion of like a pure physis, right? I mean, it hasn't existed as long as humans have existed. Like art and technology came into existence at the same time as humans. It wasn't like there were these primitive humans that didn't have culture and then culture came later. And I think that was important. So, maybe could you dig into this concept of how you conceive of technology or tools or organization or habit?
1: Yeah. So, in a way, I I already have tried to put on the table this idea that we're creatures of habit. One interesting way to think about technology and the history of technology is that it's the history of evolving forms of habit or evolving new ways of doing things. I mean, human beings can do things that we couldn't do without clothes, without shoes, without glasses, without means of locomotion beyond the body itself, without transportation. Think about the way in which the technologies that we surround ourselves with today, like the internet, which we're using now, or our iPhones, etc. I mean, These are obviously profoundly transformative, but the way they transform us is by scaffolding our ability to do more things, to reach farther. Like I can use the stick to reach that target that I can't reach with my hand, and now with my phone. I can talk to my mother in New York City, even though I'm here. And she says, so it's just, we expand and expand and extend. And what lets those things play that role for us is that they organize us. And from the point of view of designers and engineers, when you're designing a, an instrument like a phone, you've got all these really clear questions that you can be precise about. What is it for? How much does it cost to make? Is it going to be affordable if it costs that much to make it? Can we source the materials? Can we distribute the object? Is there a need for this? Is there already something else in the market that does that job? I mean, these are the kinds of things that people in the design space are going to be thinking about. But th- what's interesting is that although those are hard questions and they require creativity and ingenuity, they are determinate questions. What is it for? Well, I mean, that it's a telephone or it's a telephone plus an iPod. We'll call it an iPhone, right? This kind of amazing turning two devices into one that, that happened. But the thing about all that is all of that is culture. All of that is organization. All of that is skillful scaffolding of human being through a kind of habit space, a culture space, a skill space. And that's all great. I'm not against any of that. I think where art comes in is when we are trying to resist that. The work of art is an object whose function is never obvious. And in fact, even the appropriateness of speaking of a function is not obvious. Which means where we can say about the product, oh, this one's successful, this one does its job, this one will be good to buy, when it comes to an artwork, what would it even mean to say it's successful? We can say, well, we can make up criteria, but in a way, as lovers of art, as critics of art, as with, and I mean music, dance, drama, film, whatever you like, the very question of what would it be for it to succeed is mm-hmm. what we're grappling with. And that's a very liberating thing. It means it's precisely, art is precisely an opportunity, not just to carry on automatically, but to stop. And this has a very interesting consequence Art isn't for anything. That means it's useless. That means our friends over here, who are the designers and the engineers, are going to say, what a waste of time. Why do that? What is that? What's the value of that? Or alternatively, what's the value of philosophy? When philosophy, unlike physics, doesn't prove anything. (laughs) What makes a philosopher a great philosopher? Not that they landed on the truth and we all know it, but rather that they started a debate that we're still having. That's what the greatness is. So as a philosopher, I'm very interested in what is the value of these non-utilitarian things that are so important to us? Why are they so important to us? And that's where I want to say, actually, they are opportunities for us finally to grow and change and not just be trapped by the habits. Of culture by the ways of doing things. I mean, let me can I give you a very simple example? Take a photograph of your grandmother. It's in your family photo album. You show your kids, there's grandma. Or maybe it's on your Facebook page. That picture is kind of unproblematically intelligible. It's as if it comes with a caption, this is grandma. And that's what we see when we look at the picture. We see grandma. And I think that pictures themselves are a kind of technology. I mean, we know they go back to 40,000, if not much farther, 1,000 years back. What is it a technology for? Well, it's a technology for showing, for displaying. I show you grandma. She's passed away, and but here she is, and you can look at her with me. Or I can show you that house I want to sell you. Look. Look at the views. I can show you in the picture. So we use pictures. We make pictures. We use pictures. We display pictures. And I would argue, this is a bit controversial, I suppose, that pictures really only work as pictures, given a whole background of ways that we make and use them and reasons that things that we make and use them for. But now comes along an artist and says, here's a picture, maybe take that very picture of grandma and slap it on the wall of a gallery and say, look at this. But now you've lost the context that lets you know what it is you're seeing. So is it meaningless? Or as I would say, is it an opportunity to reflect on what we normally take for granted when we look at pictures or the place of pictures in our lives or what it is to look at another person or what it is to be seen because we ourselves are the subjects of photographic pictures and how does that connect so all of a sudden the the same thing can take on this these meanings and then i think that's a kind of as i said before i think it's a kind of liberating thing because it it lets you change your relation to
0: pictures. How is this different from simply reflection or examining from without, right? So, you know, I was thinking in, in the world of law, we have trial courts and appellate courts and kind of the trial courts are in the business of routine, right? The law is established and they're just applying it. But occasionally things get kicked up to the appellate court and the appellate court has to perhaps look at a situation from a new perspective or incorporate a consideration that, that had not been considered when the original routine had been devised. And, and now after it re-examines this, perhaps changes things, it then pushes back this new routine upon the trial courts or in business organizations, right? You do rinse, wash, repeat. And then every now and then you say, okay, wait, maybe we need to do things differently. How is it different from that? And if it shares similarities with that, then to what extent is it Can it be utilitarian, right? I mean, isn't there some purpose that's being served or some objective that's being served in the form of improving, however, whatever it is we're, we're thinking about improving?
1: That's a really good question. And it's a hard question because, in a way, while I want to stick to my guns and say there is a difference, I also want to allow for the fact that the boundary may be a blurry one. There may be times when a physicist in the laboratory or a judge in an appellate court. Is forced to use the word you used is forced to reflect on things they've been taking for granted to find a new way forward, which for me is a way of saying that maybe there might be a philosophical moment in the courtroom. And a case about this that was very famous that's been in the news recently because of the antitrust case against Google is the antitrust case that happened all those years ago against Microsoft. And it's remarkable how simple the question that was at play in that case was. Is the operating system plus the browser one object or two? <laughs> like, what, And what is it to be one or two? Is this integration a growth and development of a kind of thing, or is it a way of smuggling another? Pr- I mean, that to me is, there's not an obvious right or wrong answer to that. I mean, we'll take a stand on it, and we'll take a stand on it for reasons. And we'll take a stand on it because, not necessarily because, antecedently all the facts determine what the right answer is, but because we realize that by taking this decision rather than that we will essentially influence the future in ways that, that we want to influence the future. I'm not a theorist of the law, but what's interesting to me about that is that moment where we lack a decision procedure, which sort of antecedently lets you say, there's only one right answer, we just need to determine which it is. That's a characteristic of certain kinds of problems. And actually, I think that is the best way I can think of picking out the space of philosophy. In a philosophical context, you've got a substantive issue, but no recipe, no algorithm to resolve it. All you can do is accumulate reasons and try to change the way you see the whole landscape where the problem exists. And so let me just say that the the, the bottom line here is that to, to really get to your question, which is, I think, so important. I talk about art and I talk about philosophy, but... I don't necessarily mean the stuff in galleries or the stuff being taught at universities. I think philosophy happens throughout our lives, not only in the law. It happens in the laboratory, and it probably happens in your discussions with your partner at the dinner table sometimes. art Philosophy is a moment in our thought processes. So in a way, I want to say that there's all the difference in the world between business as usual and the work of philosophy and art, but that Outside in the wild of our lives, whether our legal lives, our political lives, our social lives, our family lives, there's lots of opportunities for art and philosophy, in my sense. The whole point of the book is that art and life are entangled, that philosophy and life are entangled. So you're giving me a beautiful example of little philosophical moments inside of life, because nothing is more central to life than the law. In a way, that's making the same point I was making before when I said that there's a way in which the kids in the cafeteria even though they're just goofballs trying to find an opportunity to dance with a girl or a boy, that those guys are, are kind of artists too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you said you can be funny without being a comedian, right? So, so that means that you can be artistic w- without being a, an artist, right?
1: That's right. That's so important. And that's also what your question was pointing at. So, I mean, I'm saying that art and life are entangled. But nevertheless, there is such a thing as dedication to the work of being an artist or dedication to the work of being a philosopher. And this actually brings us to something else you mentioned at the beginning, if I could jump to the aesthetic. In philosophy, we tend to think about, well, aesthetics is concerned with beauty or it's concerned with originality or it's concerned with awe. And so we're interested in artworks because they produce those feelings in us. I have a very different conception of the aesthetic. For me, the aesthetic is before all that. I'm interested in the experience that you go into a gallery and these pictures on the wall just don't speak to you at all. They don't grab your attention at all. You don't even really see them. And you don't see them for all the reasons we've just been talking, that the work of art refuses simply to fall into a utilitarian category. You don't know how to see it. I mean, of course, you may be an art expert. You may have particular motivations to be there. But putting that kind of consideration aside, you have to do so much work just to see the work. And that's, that, to me, is the work of aesthetics. And that happens all over our lives. That's not only an art phenomenon. When I meet somebody who's very culturally different from me, I need to make adjustments. I need to come up against my own limitations, my own habits, my own expectations, just in order to see the person standing in front of me. And I think, and this connects to the point about the difference between we can all be artistic, but only some of us are artists, Because I think art and philosophy are fields that make that very kind of problem, moving from something which is there and interrogating it so that it comes into focus in a new way, it makes that its very subject matter. It works with that. Philosophy does the same thing. I present you with all these true things that you know, and then I confront you with the mystery of figuring out how they can all be true at the same time, how they all hang together. So I'm not asking you for a new discovery. I'm asking for you to see in a new way the things you already know. And so I think art and philosophy have a very special role in that they're dedicated to that work. But that work happens
0: throughout our life. But I think, I mean, on one level, you're saying that Dance, capital D, changes the way we dance. But it also then changes how we move, right? So pictorial art changes the way we make pictures, but it also changes how we see, right? When we're not in the business of making pictures, right? Because the way pictures are done changes our visual interaction with the world and you know you talk about how writing changes the way we we talk but it even changes how we conceptualize the world right so there are these sort of feedback layers that that go up and down these different levels in in the hierarchy which i know you don't want to talk about hierarchies but there's a couple layers there right so i when i talk about i took painting classes when i was in college and i think the biggest impact for me was not i never became a painter and never would be but it changed the way I saw the world. And of course, the way I painted was influenced by the art that I viewed in museums. A beautiful
1: example of this, which I mentioned in passing in The Entanglement, but I discuss it in some other writing more, is due to an art historian named Anne Hollander, who wrote an amazing book called Seeing Through Clothes. And it's a history of painting, focusing on representations of dress and the dressed body in painting, like throughout the history of Western art. It's a a beautiful book, but she's got this... very interesting chapter in there on mirrors. And she she makes the following point. When you get ready to go out in the evening, you might have a mirror in the hall near the door and you go and you stand in front of it and you adjust your tie or you fix your makeup, or you make sure your hair is good. You look at yourself, you look at yourself in the mirror. And she says, it's almost as if you look at yourself in the mirror as if you were looking at a picture of yourself, like you frame yourself, you compose the image of yourself, almost as if you're making a sort of little self-portrait provisionally. She didn't have access to the concept of the selfie, which is another way of doing exactly the same thing. And then she has this sentence, which is one, it it really sent a a jolt of electricity to my body when I read this sentence. She says, the picture gives the standard by which the direct awareness is assessed or the direct perception. I actually now forget which word. So in other words, you really are seeing yourself in the mirror, but somehow the way that experience is framed for you is in relation to what it would be to see yourself in a picture. And then if you consider the fact that pictures are related to art and artists shape and influence how we make pictures, all of a sudden it starts to put being a person getting ready to go out in the evening into this dynamic relation with the history of art. And in one sense, it's obvious. It's obvious that culture influences us. But it's also profound to realize that something so basic as visual consciousness itself might be shaped by pictoriality in this way, which then comes back to a point you made before about fuses and culture, because the vision scientist wants to say, I want to study what happens in your brain when you see. But before they can find out what happens in your brain when you see, they need to be clear about what it is they mean by you see. And it turns out that's a moving target.
0: (laughs) That's not a natural thing, it's a moving target. Well, I'm surprised you didn't use the example of Madonna with the Vogue, right, in, in the video, how she sees herself through that lens.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess that whole Vogue culture is based on that image, seeing the stuff. I mean, this is, I think, a probably, I mean, especially, I guess, in, in the era of film, we're so focused on knowing ourselves to the image of ourselves. It's amazing how much we take pictures of stuff. But going back to something you said that I think is very interesting, what you were really learning to do when you were learning to paint, or one of the things you were learning to do was you were learning to look. You were developing a capacity to pay attention to the thing that you're drawing or painting. And I actually think that's true of when mom and dad, instead of listening to their kids' violin concert, are filming the kids' violin concert, in a way they are listening, because it's a way of focusing their attention on the thing they care about. My kids are older now, but it used to be that you could never see the performance for the forest of videographers, parental videographers,
0: blocking your view
1: of anything happening on stage.
0: Well, I mean, you reference, I guess, Ruskin's view right, in Strawson's view. And what's the deficiency there with their idea of kind of the pictorial perspective? Different kinds of
1: theorists from different perspectives have tried to do phenomenology, is a term that's sometimes used for it, to describe what seeing is really like. And Ruskin, who was, was a painter and a teacher of art and maybe even a more famous art critic in the 19th century, he had this idea which it's very common actually in British empiricism. It's associated with Barclay and with Hume and, and with Locke that what we really see are shapes and colors. The world itself is something we infer beyond the shapes and colors. So his thought is that what you really describe, when you really look, what you really see are just blobs of shape and color. So if you wanted to truthfully describe your seeing, describe it accurately, describe it without any false importations, you wouldn't mention grandma. I wouldn't mention the sky. I wouldn't mention my book. My book is just a dynamic pattern of shape and color. So that's one kind of a view. Sometimes that's called the sense datum view, that what we really see are these subjective sense data. And Ruskin was motivated to advance that view because he thought artists need to stop painting what they think is there and start painting what they see. Therefore, they need to pay attention in a new way to what they see. Now, Strawson, a came much later in history. He was a mid-20th century, but Strawson was an... He, he, came into prominence as a british philosopher in the middle of the 20th century he said that's a falsification of experience that's a highly theoretical picture you have that all you really see are blobs of color what i see is the book now i can describe the book in terms of its color properties or shape properties but to do that i need to abstract away from i need to step back from what is really given to me which is the book or the person when i look into my beloved's eyes i don't see shapes and colors i see her or them. And so the idea, he said, is that's a falsification of experience and true phenomenology is a direct experience of things in the world. So we have these two really brilliant people claiming that the fundamental character of experience is radically different from what the other is saying. Now, if there's one thing we're supposed to know, it's what experience is like because we all have it. So how can there be that kind of disagreement? What kind of disagreement is it? And there's many other candidate views for how to think about experience. And so in one chapter in the book called Styles of Seeing, I point out that you could think of those views as both wrong if they're thought of as like complete, total, absolute descriptions of what seeing is like, but each of them is capturing what you might think of as a style of seeing or a way of seeing or one of the ways we can experience the world. Just as to go back to the Anne Hollander example, we don't always experience ourselves as if we're looking at pictures of ourselves, but sometimes we do. And similarly, we don't always experience shapes and colors. Sometimes we experience the things of concern to us. But sometimes when we're looking at the things of concern to us, we can see them as shapes and colors. So that there's multiple possibilities here. And then the further point, to connect it finally, to close the loop, is that I think to those two different ways of thinking about seeing that Strawson defends and that Ruskin defends, there actually corresponds two different ways of thinking about pictures. Strawson would have said, you Ruskin, You've just got a painting in your mind. I'm trying to describe seeing. But there's a way in which he's also describing seeing. I mean, the pictorial way of thinking of seeing. He's just thinking about the, how the picture is built a little bit differently. So that now you might have thought, and as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, I came at this as a student of vision. I mean, I was my primary training was in philosophy, but I really wanted to make a contribution to the science of human consciousness, specifically vision or more generally perception. And in a way, what... What I'm now realizing is that I think there just isn't a kind of a non-question-begging way of stipulating what seeing is because of the ways in which there's different kinds of seeing. And to differentiate the similarities and differences and interconnections between those different kinds of seeing is actually an aesthetic problem, like my comments earlier about just trying to bring the world into focus. We need to do a lot of work just to see what seeing is.
0: Well, I think you, you said somewhere that experience isn't something that happens to us, but it's something that we do, right? So, I mean, it's not possible to express things as they actually are, via eigenlich Wesen, right? Like, you know, we can't actually do that. There is no unmediated experience with the world, right?
1: Now, I agree with that.
0: But I think about, there's different ways you could think about that.
1: You could think about, we're always looking at the world through a filter, but I prefer to think about it that we're always interacting with the world based on what we know how to do, based on what we understand. If I walk into a room with a TV in it, I don't see mere shapes and color and then apply the concept TV to it, kind of in a judgment form. TVs show up for me because I'm tuned to TVs. I have that concept, but that concept is, I think, it less as something we apply to the world and more as equipment that lets the world show up for us. So think of the concept TV as like a calipers that lets me pick up TVs or that lets me touch TVs or hold TVs. If I were a dog or if I were a person, maybe we're talking about an old tube television, which my child has never seen, she might walk in and not know what the heck that is. Actually, that would be a funny test. It might show up to her as a big brown box. What is that big brown box in your room? Atsala, this
0: is this thing we used to have called TVs. And you have a whole chapter on writing, and I found that fascinating because you, you point out that the first form of recording on tablets was really like accounting. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't even really words. And so, how can we think of? I mean, writing's relationship to speech is that it's not quite identical to the relationship between dance capital D and dancing.
1: No, it's not. It's more complicated than that. And that's partly because writing, you can think of writing as playing two roles. Sometimes it's playing the regimenting role, and sometimes it's playing the uh, liberating role. And so let me say a little bit more about that. The, The first point you make, which by the way is beautifully investigated by the linguist Roy Harris, is the idea that we think of sort of writing as for representing speech. But in fact, writing is more like its own kind of speech. It's its own way of cognizing the world symbolically. And we're familiar with that in our lives. We have all sorts of writing that isn't about representing speech. For example, mathematical writing. An Arabic mathematician and a French mathematician and a Chinese mathematician can all read out the same mathematical proof in their languages. There's no implication of the language in the mathematical notation. Or an even more profound example is uh, music where the music isn't representing the linguistic articulation of a musical idea. It's directly representing the musical idea. So it's a form of reading. You can read music, but you're not reading it in a language. And in fact, I'm no expert on this, but it's the case that the Chinese ideographic script is actually capable. It it functions that way. So one and the same text can be read aloud by a Mandarin speaker or a Cantonese speaker, even though they can't communicate directly with each other. So, it's exactly as in the same relation to the mathematical script. So, there's this amazing there's this fact that script really comes apart, writing comes apart from language. So, the interesting question is when did we start writing language? Like, when did we start using this repertoire, this ability, this cognitive capacity to use writing? When did we start to use that to represent speech itself? And that's probably a datable, historians can debate about exactly when it started. But that's a historical event. But what interests me, and this is really the focus of that chapter, which is called The Writerly Attitude, is that even before that happened, we must have already been able to think about language as the kind of thing that, in principle at least, could be written, as articulated, as involving parts and elements. Here's the puzzle, really. I can say it pretty simply. Speech is tied up with the throat and the body and the breath, and it's physical movement. It's literally physical movement. But it's physical movement that we think is somehow extractable from that and write-downable. How did we ever write it down for the first time? Well, it must be that we already conceived of it somehow as write-downable before we wrote it down. Writing, in some sense, the possibility of writing, or what I call the writerly attitude, in some sense was there all along. And why would that be? And I think the answer is that language is always a problem for language users.
0: Yeah, you said something like you can't you cannot use speech without having a theory of speech, or at least you know, some kind of understanding of how speech works or what it's for.
1: Or at least a concern for the problems of speech. You know, you and I are talking and you say something I don't understand and I say, what? Can you repeat that? And you repeat it in different words. So language isn't a kind of an automatic thing that we do following the rules blindly. This goes back to our earlier part of our conversation. To be a language user is to have resources for coping with problems that arise in the course of that activity, misunderstandings, needs for clarifications, demands for repetitions or justifications. So to be a speaker is not just to do this kind of automatic thing, it's to be able to reflect on what we're doing. So the ability to reflect is presupposed at the ground level. See, this is why I want to resist the hierarchy idea, because there are two levels. There's the use of language, and there's the reflection about language. But it turns out that the ability to be a user of language presupposes that you're also able to reflect on language. So the meta-theory, if you will, is built into the object language, which is an extraordinary, uh, thing. And by the way, you mentioned my baseball book, but that was one of the main themes of the baseball book. The way in which part of what it is to play the game of baseball is to be concerned with questions of how you score the game in real time as it's played, because depending upon how you score it, it becomes one thing or another thing. So you need to have that perspective. And to go back to something you said before, I don't think it's the view from outside. That's the thing you never can get outside because the outside is contained within the activity itself.
0: Yeah, you made me gain a greater appreciation for baseball. I thought the only philosopher in baseball was Yogi Berra, but it turns out that everybody who's watching and playing is engaging in something like a philosophical enterprise. But it also made me think I mean, you talk about while you're playing baseball, right? There are these moments of flow. And I guess the reason why you like baseball is that the ratio of non-flow to flow is very high in in, in baseball. Other people would say that's why it's boring, right? But yeah, I mean, the flow state is precisely the state where you are not engaging in that reflection.
1: Right. So I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, here's a little, you and I are both at Berkeley, and uh, one of the people who really shaped my thinking was Hubert Dreyfus, who was at Berkeley for many years. And he was very big on this idea of flow And, I mean, obviously, flow is an idea that's in the psychology literature independently, but he came to it out of the phenomenological tradition in philosophy, especially Merleau-Ponty and Heidegger, who thought there was this fundamental cleavage between the engaged attitude and the detached attitude. When you're engaged, you're just carrying on, and when you're detached, your carrying on has been disrupted, and you need to stand back, and all of a sudden you you take a completely different relationship to the world around you when you are, are contemplating it. I argued with Bert about this. Year after year after year, and I dedicated this book to him because, in some way, to his memory, because in some way, this is at the heart of the book. I don't believe in that sharp cleavage between you're just carrying on and you're engaged and now you're detached. Because it seems to me, and this is, if you like, the key case of entanglement. The flow always contains within itself an alert readiness for the need for reflection, for detachment. And detachment is never full detachment. It's always Detachment as it is embedded in the engagement. So I'm ru- I'm I'm running down the street, and I trip. That doesn't shift me from I'm now no longer running down the street. Now I'm lying on the ground. I'm just I get up and I keep running. It becomes an episode in my running, or in my in my larger project. So, I think that our engagements, in Dreyfus's sense, or our flow states, are much more fragile than he thought, but also much more
0: resilient than he
1: thought, and that resilience has to do with their containment of their own resources for
0: reflection about them. They also had a chapter in the book that where you discuss gender, right? Or, I mean, as a subset of a larger set of phenomenon, right? But I was wondering if you could kind of walk through how that relates to the discussion on the different types of art and philosophy.
1: So the work there... It's a more general set of questions I'm asking about what people these days call identity. What are identities? Well, identities are kind of stereotypes. So there are kinds of pictures that we have, or a term I use, is scores that we have, that we think we need to follow. So there are conventionally, historically, ways that different kinds of people act. Men act like that. Women act like that. Children act like that. Old people act like that. There are racial Distinctions that people feel they can make on the basis of observation. And um, this is an idea that actually goes back to very, very important work done by Ian Hacking on what he called looping concepts. One of the things about identity concepts is they don't just sort people into categories. They give those people resources for thinking about themselves so that they, in effect, they don't just fall under the category, they enact the category or they perform the category.
0: Yeah. Well, examples I was thinking about is apparently if you go to Sicily now and you find mobsters, they all model their dress code after the folks in Goodfellas. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a very
1: deep point. I think that's a very deep point. I mean, a question that I've often wondered about, and I refer to it in passing in this part of the book is why do people talk differently from each other? Like, why do New Yorkers talk different from Bostonians? I was just in Chicago. Why do Chicagoans have their distinctive accent? And you might say, oh, well, people learn to talk from the people around them, so they talk the way people around them talk. But the truth is, in the 21st century, at least in the United States or in London, which is another place which is famous for its accent, for its different accents, we're not exposed to only one accent. We're all exposed to lots of different kinds of people talking lots of different kinds of ways through the media, through television, through film, through the internet, and even in our own private sphere. I mean, older people tend to talk different from younger people. So if you've ever met grandma, doesn't talk the way your kids at school talk and your parents probably don't either. So we're exposed to a diversity of ways of talking. What makes us talk the way we talk? And I think, I'm sure that that there's people who study dialect that have thought a lot about this, but the thought that I develop in the book is that It must be that in some sense we talk the way we think we're supposed to talk. And different factors can choose, push different people to make different choices about
0: how they think they're supposed to talk. And my my mom was from Queens, and her brother and sister, you could tell immediately as soon as they opened their mouth, they're from Queens. And my mother, you, you couldn't. So, you know, at some point she made the decision that she didn't think she was supposed to sound like she was from Queens. You know, she had a different model of how she was supposed to sound.
1: That's It's funny that you give that example, because I was just about to give a Queen's example, which was former Governor Andrew Cuomo. So here's a guy who grew up, he was the son of a governor, he grew up in the lap of luxury in upper middle class New York, and yet he had a very distinctive outer borough New York way of talking. You know, somewhere along the road, that politician learned That's how he needed to sound to do. And I'm not saying it was a decision in the sense of, I will choose to alter my identity. It's this gradual thing where over time, when you become something different by the ways in which we think about how we're supposed to be. And the suggestion that I make in the book is that we should think about gender and this connection. We can often tell just by looking, that's a man, that's a woman, because men and women share ideas about how they're supposed to be, which actually, they're not, if you like, different by nature, but they differentiate themselves by nature, if you like, because we, we tend to enact these models of ourselves. And I think that way of thinking about it has the advantage of both acknowledging the reality of biology and also the amount of freedom there is to really become what we are as people, because the way we are is not determined by biology, just as the way you talk isn't determined by where you're born. So I want to say that the gender stands to the sort of some way of conceptualizing the biological body in something like the way that writing stands to speech, so that you get a kind of an entanglement. And then you also get, and this becomes important in terms of the contemporary politics surrounding gender, Once you see that, you can also make room for the thought that we don't have to do it that way. We can do it differently. And there are some people who are playing with those self-models they use to organize themselves, playing very experimentally and very radically. And I think that's a very legitimate way of being. It's, this leads then into this conversation, which is almost too hot to have because people get so so triggered by it. But I actually, I view this as part of a, a way of appreciating and acknowledging the importance of the phenomenon of transgender.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes people will say, don't judge me by how I dress, let's say. But I mean, that's kind of why you dress the way you dress. <laughs> because you want people to, you're communicating some kind of identity through your dress, right?
1: Yeah, that's the deep question. And I'm so in the chapter on style and existential style, that's really what I'm grappling with precisely that on the one hand, Martin Luther King imagined a world in which we don't judge people, children, by the color of their skin. On the other hand, we appreciate the meaningful and positive ways in which people affirm their racial identities. So that's different from the way you dress, but it's connected in that sometimes the surface is important too. And so, and this is actually something I'm continuing to work on. I'm trying to think precisely about that.
0: Well, Alva, thank you so much for joining me, this is great. I I really enjoyed this book, The Entanglement, and the the word, The Entanglement, the word has multiple meanings throughout the book, right? I mean, there's multiple ways that these things get entangled. So I highly recommend that people give a deeper dive into the book, but also don't forget Strange Tools, which I also really enjoyed. And for those of you who want to get a greater appreciation of baseball, Can you please write a book on football? Make that one your next one. (laughs) Because I like football a whole lot better. Anyway, thanks for joining me. Let's talk again soon.
1: My pleasure, Greg. Thanks so much for this opportunity to talk to you and to communicate
0: what I'm doing to your listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast, produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.